The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. Do you ever think about dying? Oh my goodness, you're probably thinking how moribund, who would want to think about something like that? And yet, if you think about why vacations are so wonderful, it's because they have a beginning and an end. And maybe life is more wonderful when we recognize that it has a beginning and an end. Maybe we should consider living with the end in mind. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. Wonderful to be here with you and with our lovely guest, Barbara Becker, whose new book is called Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. It's a Nautilus Book Award winner. And Katie Couric has included it in her books that will change your life. And you know what? I think Katie's got something there. This does feel like a life changer and a game changer in terms of how all of us look at something that we share, but so often in our culture anyway, try to avoid. And that is the reality of mortality. So I'll tell you a little bit about Barbara before we meet her. Barbara Becker has dedicated more than 25 years to partnering with human rights advocates around the world in pursuit of peace and interreligious understanding. She's done this with the United Nations, Human Rights First, the Ms. Foundation for Women, and she is an interfaith minister who bridges the sacred and the secular. She has sat with hundreds of people 
at the end of their lives. Welcome, Barbara. Victoria, it is such a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you so much for saying that. We have gone through all sorts of uh, technical oddities to get to this point. So how wonderful that we finally made it. It must be the perfect moment. So it's just such a pleasure to speak with you. Very often, I get to know people, kind of know with little quotes around it, via social media. And very often, you meet the person or you read the book and you find the social media person is somebody different. And you're not. And I think that's why I was so attracted when I started seeing some of your your wonderful posts. And then, of course, I found out we had mutual friends and that's just the way it goes. So let's start by talking a little bit about you. Even before you wrote this wonderful book, you were doing remarkable things with your life. How did that all get started? So I have had a wonderful career. As you mentioned at the start, I've worked with human rights advocates from around the world for over 25 years. It's been such an honor. My first job in that arena was with the musician Peter Gabriel. And I worked with Peter on a project to bring video equipment to human rights activists in places of conflict. So it was baptism by fire, and um, I got to know a lot of activists across the world, and um, I have been working with them, ghostwriting op-eds and looking at international law and policy, right, you know, writing all of these technical things. And at some point, I said to myself, I have a story of my own to tell also. So I started writing in the wee hours of the morning around my human rights work and Heartwood was birthed. Mm. So what kind of little girl were you going back before you were doing a human rights work? Why were you doing that instead of the things that most people find themselves doing? <laughs> That's a good question. And I think my parents wondered the same thing. Um, I was a seeker from such an early age. Uh, my father was a neurosurgeon, and he uh, worked at a hospital that had a medical staff from all around the world. And to better understand who he was working with, he had bought this volume of books on the world's religions. And he had it in our bookcase. And as soon as I could read, I remember climbing up the bookcase and taking down those volumes and learning about these incredible cultures and ways that people saw the world. And I was hooked. I mean, I knew from the earliest, earliest of ages that uh, there was more to life than meets our, well, certainly my suburban <laughs> little life at that point. That's fascinating because my dad was also a physician. He was an ENT. And I too have a story about climbing up on a bookcase. It was to pull down his old, it was a book called Alimentaris Humanus. And somehow I knew that was about nutrition. I'm not sure how, how I knew that. And I didn't understand anything except there was a chart that talked about nutrient density and like the first eight foods, they were all green things that I had never had. And I remember thinking, just like you were thinking there's more than I'm being told. 
I was thinking there's more than I've been eating. <laughs> so little, little connection there. So in, in your life, what led you to consider death? So uh, when I was in third grade, um, I was doing what a lot of young children do. When my parents were out, I was kind of snooping through their things. And I came across my dad's wallet um, while he was out raking leaves and my mom was grocery shopping. And I went inside his wallet. I saw a picture of my mom and behind it, I noticed there was a picture with some frayed edges and I carefully pulled it out. And it was a woman I had never seen before, a black and white photo of a, just a friendly looking woman who looked like she was a nurse. And um, I was just standing there with the photo in my hand when my mom entered the room. She had come home and I didn't hear the garage door open. And um, instead of feeling like remorseful, I was a little bit indignant. And I said, who is this in dad's wallet? And she let me know at that time that my dad had actually been married before he had, was married to my mom and that this woman's name was Maureen. She was from England and she had died in a boating accident shortly after their honeymoon. That's all I knew. Um, my mom was so, she had such high emotional intelligence and, um, I think she just understood that over time I would ask the questions that she would answer and she wouldn't give me any unnecessary details that were potentially traumatizing. So I lived with this, um, you know, I sometimes called Maureen like this benevolent ghost in, in hindsight. Like she was a person who was very much a part of our family, although clearly my brothers and I and my mom had never met her. Oh my goodness, what a powerful story. But that's not what led to the book. No, I think it led to the start of my existential questions, um, which then, you know, I learned more and more about Maureen as the years went on. And then as I got older and my children were young, my earliest childhood friend, whose name is Marissa, uh, she was diagnosed with um, stage four cancer. You know, it had spread throughout her body. And when the doctors told her that she had no more than a year to live, I went through a deep crisis. Now, I was thinking about Marissa's mortality. I was thinking that I would lose my parents someday and probably not that far off in the future. I worried about my children. I worried about my husband and I worried about my own mortality. So I did what you, you could tell I did when I was a young child, I turned to books um, to see if I could make meaning of, of this fact that we're so fragile, that we are going to die, and how do we deal with it? And I discovered that like saints and sages throughout time, from the Buddha to the prophet Muhammad to Marcus Aurelius and the Stoic philosophers, they've just implored us 
to not run away from death, but to face it head on. And they promise that if we do that, we ourselves will live richer and fuller lives in the time that we have. That's a really interesting concept because I have always wondered about the little bit of tug between cherishing life on earth and living each day fully while we're here, but still accepting the inevitability of death. And certainly for many of us, the idea that life is much more than what we're getting on this planet right now. So how do these teachers and and how do these teachings that you delved into explain how death can instruct us? Well, I thought one of the best teachers was actually Steve Jobs, who was from Apple, as you know, and he, um, I believe it was pancreatic cancer, and he uh, was diagnosed. He gave a commencement speech um, in which he said that death is the most important invention of life because it's life's change agent. So I had this modern person telling us that this is the way to kind of go forward. And you're right, there is a bit of a disconnect between reading this in, you know, philosophy or world religions or and applying it when you yourself are dying or you have loved ones dying. So what I did was I decided I had to live this rather than just read. And I sought out two Zen monks who work in New York City, and they train people to be a compassionate presence at the bedside. Um, And I went through a training program with them in which I learned some of these skills of being with hospice patients. And then I was placed on a floor at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which is our largest public hospital. And I um, had the honor and the privilege of being with patients in the last days and hours and minutes of their lives. Um, People who came from all over uh, the world, representing like the full diversity of New York City. What a blessed experience. Because I have always thought that in our culture, our tremendous difficulty with death does not seem to be shared by people in other parts of the world. I'm not talking about Western Europe, you know, (laughs) they're like us, Australia, but, but places where things have been simpler. I recall I was doing work with Tibetan refugees back in the 90s, and one of my co-workers went on a trip that I didn't go on, and he was meeting with a family that we had known from a a previous trip. And one of the children had passed away. She was six years old. And my friend said, oh, I'm so sorry. What did she die from? And the father said, oh, she didn't die of anything. She just died. And we could say, well, that's a lack of scientific understanding. But it's also a degree of acceptance that I think is somewhat enviable. So talk to us a little bit about our our dearth of experience in being around someone's passing. 
Oh, it's so true. Um, you know, I was fortunate um, because my parents had both of my grandmothers living in our home in their final days, and that was quite unusual. Um, people often go to nursing homes or die in the hospital. Um, and certainly after they have died, we either embalm people and make them look like they're going to the garden party or, you know, uh, we just were so not familiar with death. And I remember my mom telling me about her next door neighbor when she was a child, a man from Italy and his family was coming after he passed away to pay their respects. So they put him on a block of ice for a week. Um, no, we're having a return to some of these early movements here in the United States. There's something called the Green Burial Movement, where people can work with a funeral director to have the body return to the home so people can come pay their respects. Sometimes children will decorate the casket with you know, crayons and paints and put letters nearby and flowers that the person liked. And it's a, an opportunity to say goodbye in a way that, you know, we we haven't done for like basically since the Civil War, as I understand it, when we started embalming bodies. I think that a lot of the avoidance is the fear and it becomes a kind of vicious circle. We're afraid, so we avoid and because we avoid, we're more afraid. So we need somebody to write a memoir that's about the art of living with the end in mind, but you did that. So tell us about the book and those circumstances. So the book contains stories of people who I have been close to and who have died, as well as interspersed with some of the stories of the hospice patients who I met along the way. Um, and this included going and doing a deep dive into what death has looked like in my life. And one of the stories I was initially reluctant to tell, but decided to go into um, you know, perhaps because it might help other people, is the story of two miscarriages that I had. Um, you know, pregnancy loss is such a taboo on top of a taboo in our culture. And, um, you know, women and partners are just not very inclined to talk about a life that they feel like uh, might not be seen as, as a important loss in our lives. So I wrote about um, two miscarriages I had. I have two sons as well. And um, I, I miscarried a daughter and then I had my son and then I miscarried another daughter and I had my second son. But those two daughters, um, I really believe are with me always. Um, you know, it's they they're just sort of part of our family. They're the braided um part of the wholeness of who we are. And one year, I mean, you had been mentioning social media. One year on October 15th, which is the National Day of Pregnancy and Infant Loss, I decided to go on Facebook and um, to name those two losses for the first time. And I named their names. They were Arden and Adele. And I asked people, my friends on Facebook, if they had had any similar losses. And what was so shocking to me, Victoria, was that 
like over a hundred people responded, people I know really well. And I only knew about a handful of their losses. There were so many, and we just don't talk about it. Oh, that's fascinating. Seems like we need to do a lot more talking. So yeah. So you refer to death as a woman and saying that as you reflect on your initial losses, that this woman who had been uh, your father's first wife had slipped quietly into your home and declared herself your teacher. So are you speaking there of, of death generically or this woman whose picture you came upon? Both, actually. And so Maureen was, I like to think of her as my first teacher in death and grief and loss. Um, I learned so much from her. And a lot of that came from my mom. So another influence of a woman. My mom um, did the most beautiful thing. She was never threatened by Maureen's presence. Um, and she easily could have been, right? Maureen never aged. She was perpetually beautiful. Um, you know, she and my father had been married for such a short time that they had never even had an argument. Um, but my mom taught me something about grief and ritual in that every single year, she would pay to have a wreath laid at Christmas time on Maureen's grave just as her own acknowledgement of Maureen. And that um, struck me as so beautiful. I learned from her example. And as I got older, I thought about these images we have of like the Grim Reaper, you know, with the big black hood and the bony finger pointing at us and the scythe above the shoulder. And it's so menacing. And of course, we're going to be terrified of death if we have that image as the image of the inevitable in our minds. And I thought, I think death is more friendly. It, it, it's someone we can learn from, someone we can sit at the feet of and, um, and take in lessons about the richness and fullness of the time we do have. So that was how it all began to shift for me. Oh, it sounds like you're going to make things shift a lot for many people who read your book, which listeners is Heartwood. It's the subtitle is The Art of Living with the End in Mind, Heartwood by Barbara Becker. Her website is barbarabecker.com. She is on Facebook as barbarabecker.com author and we will put all of her urls on the show notes at um, victoriamoran.com so do take a look there and i'm just thinking that as we're looking forward at all of the wonders of each day ahead to know that there is a period punctuation at the end is almost almost thrilling. Like, what are you going to do before the period? Let's just breathe for a second and uh, we'll come back and talk about that. So Barbara, something happened the day the book came out. And if you didn't hear it from you, 
it would probably be unbelievable, but tell us the story. So the day that Heartwood was to go out into the world, which is usually a cause for big celebration for an author, um, I was actually having surgery for a new diagnosis of breast cancer. I had just learned about it days before the book was to come out. Um, it was what my friend Marissa had died of, uh, what my grandmother had died of. And um, I was forced to have to read my own book, you know, instead of doing book launches and, and going around um, and talking to people about the book, I really had to delve into my own words um, because this really was the test of that, you know, age old theory that we can live more fully by thinking about the end. Um, at that point in time, I didn't know uh, what stage of cancer it was. I didn't have a lot of information. And um, thankfully, uh, it was caught early and my prognosis is good. But not knowing that, um, I went back over passages of the book and understood again what I had said when I wrote that the difficulties in life are not roadblocks preventing us from life, you know, the things that we just have to get over so we can resume our life, but they actually are our life. And there is no way to, um, to deal with any of that without going through it. And it's uh, the work with the hospice patients that I had been doing for three years before my own diagnosis uh, was so um, alive for me, because one of the big lessons is that we have to show up in the everyday moments with full presence. Now, when Marissa was dying, I thought, okay, I'm going to go on a meditation retreat, and I'm going to sit in a pristine hall with these beautiful cushions, perfectly aligned, and I'm, I'm really going to get something out of that. But I found that I got even more out of meditation when I came home and the living room floor had Legos all over the place. And I just sat down on a pile of dirty laundry because it's the, it's the quotidian, it's the moment by moment. And if we can get ourselves to a place where we are just fully invested with what is happening right now, even if what is happening right now is difficult, and perhaps especially if it's difficult, that we sort of make strides in understanding the meaning and purpose of our lives. Oh, that's a lot, Barbara. Thank you. Something that I think a lot of us find difficult is being with those we love or people in our lives who are sick, especially if there is a high likelihood that their death is near. So give us a little tutorial on how do we do it? That's such a good question. You know, I was terrified of that when I went into the room of the first hospice patient that I had ever worked with. And I remember what one of those Zen monks had taught me. You know, he said, you think you're going to go into a room and you're going to have those big life and death questions. Maybe they want to know what happens after they die, as if you even know the answer to that. 
And he's like, it's not like that at all. You know, if they are sitting in their room watching Jeopardy, your only job is to pull up a chair and to start watching Jeopardy together. Like that's, that is the art of not fixing a situation, but as they say, meeting people where they are. I learned other things from them as well. Um, no, they said it, it's really kind of graceful to ask the the questions that you think are stupid questions. So I had a hospice patient once who wanted to tell me about the Mets. You know, he loved baseball and he wanted to talk about the Mets. And I know absolutely nothing about baseball. So I said to him, I know nothing. Like, what, what does this mean? What do the Mets mean to you? Tell me more. And tell me more is, is a beautiful entry for any kind of open-ended questions. And he said to me, um, you know, he talked for almost an hour about going to baseball games with his father when he was a little kid and not about the technical parts of, of baseball at all. And it was really his way of talking about the ancestors and, you know, his father, who he, he really believed he was going to be reunited with in his death. So it gave us an opening to so many rich avenues for conversation and for just digging deeply into meaning. So you have studied a lot of different traditions and how they look at, at death. Do you think anybody does it better than some of the others? What have you figured out? One thing that was really not a part of the um, religious and spiritual belief system that I grew up in is a belief in um, the ancestors. Um, I had a patient once, she was a young woman from New Zealand, and she was part um, Indigenous Maori. And um, I felt terrible for her. She had come to the United States on an art fellowship and immediately got sick and was dying alone. I spent a lot of time with her. And, you know, at one point she turned to me and she said, you know, Barbara, I'm, I'm really not alone. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, in our belief system, the ancestors are gathering around my bedside right now, and they're there to reach out their hands and take me to the other side. And this is repeated in so many cultures around the world. Um, you know, we see if we go to a restaurant in Chinatown, for instance, you see in Japan and Thailand, little altars that are set up in the front of restaurants often with photographs of ancestors and a little candle, perhaps a bowl of rice and some fruit. Um, it's it's uh, evident throughout many, many uh, religious and spiritual traditions. And that was definitely in my mind as a comforting concept when I came up with the title of the book, Heartwood. Um, Heartwood, I learned after my parents died, and that's something else that I wrote about in the book. But Heartwood is, if you imagine the cross-section of a tree, that dark inner pillar of the tree that's prized by woodworkers for its strength and its durability and the growth rings grow around it, that heartwood is actually dead. 
um, it's completely inert. It no longer participates in the flow of water and nutrients up and down the tree anymore. But for the growth rings to, to grow and the tree to be healthy, it needs that source of stability of what has come before. And when I discovered that, I thought, oh, I get it. I understand this now. Like my parents are in my heartwood. Marissa is in my heartwood. Maureen, Arden, Adele, these hospice patients, they all form a part of who I have become. And I, I turn to them for strength. And what about people who have had some kind of faith that one would think would be supportive at that time, but because of illness, which can be really cruel, it can strike at a time that we think is much too soon, they lose their faith. What do you say to them? Oh, that can happen. It definitely happens. It's why I encourage everyone to um, dip a toe into this subject now. Um, because while we're feeling well, it's just a lot better time to contemplate any of this than when we are in our final moments, perhaps in a great deal of pain. Um, my mom was in such a place when she died. She had a strong um, Christian belief system, and yet the pain that she was in was something that was not even able to be controlled by the palliative care medications. And it was um, torturous. And I was with um, a hospice aide who came to our home. And, um, you know, she, she brought up something important, which is that my father had died a few months before. And my mom had looked forward to a time after he died where she wasn't the caretaker anymore and she would be able to spend time with her grandchildren and go to the beach and resume her work volunteering in a hospital. But that wasn't to be. And sort of the um, the, the big questions around that and the, the torture of the pain, the physical pain she was in was added to by this knowing that she wasn't going to be around. So in this case, um, having this insight, it was really just a matter of talking to my mom about that. She wanted to talk about her loss, but nobody would go there with her. Nobody would talk about the thing that she really wanted to talk about. And somehow it helped. And um, in the end, in the final hours of my mom's life, uh, my brothers and I gathered, her grandchildren gathered, it was around Christmas time, and we sang all of her favorite Christmas carols. And I think it was a, a gentle way of reminding her, because it worked for her, I wouldn't do that for you know anybody else unless I knew that about her, that this was a special time in her spiritual calendar. And I think she was able to, to take it in and to have a more gentle death because of the, the music that she loved so much. What do you think, Barbara, about the death with dignity movement? I believe there are five states in, in the U.S. that allow physician-assisted suicide, I guess is the terminology. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, I, um, I've been very close to this lately because an uncle of my husband's just died through physician-assisted death. Um, he had a very torturous um, form of cancer, and the quality of his days uh, just wasn't there at all. And um, he wanted to take control of his final days. And um, I, I feel that this is something that we must respect individual choice. Um, I observed that he died a, a beautiful, dignified death. He got to say goodbye to his family members. Um, he was given some sleeping pills and he went gently. Um, I think this is up to the individual, you know, they're in conversation with their family and if relevant with their, their therapist, their spiritual directors, um, it's not to be taken lightly in any way. And what I find so interesting is that in Oregon, where this movement started, there were a lot of studies about um, physician-assisted death, and patients at the end of their lives will often ask for the medication that they themselves will take to end their life. But they found that it was only a small percentage of the patients who actually used it. Hmm. They just wanted to have it on hand to know, to comfort themselves that if this ever got too impossibly difficult to deal with, um, they would be able to end it. And even just knowing that they were able to live um, more fully into their final days. Mm, that's lovely. Yeah, it's from the time I first heard about it, I remember it was an older woman. I'm probably older now than she was then, but I was in my late 20s, so she seemed pretty old. And we, we met in the animal rights movement. And she was part of something at that time called the Hemlock Society. I'd never heard of such a thing. But she was so matter of fact about it, that, that people should be able to leave when they wish to leave if they're enduring a, a torturous condition which we recognize for companion animals. So we don't want him to suffer any longer. We don't want to lose him, but we don't want him to suffer. And yet with humans, it's it's been viewed differently in our culture. Uh, that is so true. And um, I just firmly believe that uh, this choice should be left to the individual, that it should not be outlawed or banned. Yes. So finally, Barbara, we talked earlier that we had a little something in common and that both of our dads were physicians. We have a little other something in common, and that is that in midlife, you chose to become an interfaith minister. And in later life, my husband, who, when I met him and for years after I met him, was an atheist, decided to become an interfaith minister. So that's such a fascinating route for people to take. So tell us your story. You know, after meeting all of these patients from all of these faith traditions, I decided to go back to school. Um, you know, I, I was still going to work in human rights, but I was going to do a comparative religion study. And then as I got closer and closer to understanding 
what gives people a sense of meaning, I decided that um, I could do this. I, I could actually become ordained myself. Um, yet there's much being said right now uh, about Americans losing their religion, about the spiritual but not religious or the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. <laughs> uh, but what's so fascinating to me about that is that when people decide to not call themselves a religion, it doesn't mean that they are not still spiritual. And I think people are really looking for ways to make meaning, to create ritual, um, periods of transition and celebration, and even mourning that if they don't have a particular religious tradition, um, that somebody would be willing to work with them to create something. So the brand of interfaith minister I am respects all beliefs, whether it is one of the big world major religions, whether it's a wisdom or indigenous tradition, or whether people don't define themselves as traditionally religious at all. So are you comfortable sharing your worldview? Yes. Um, so I grew up in the Christian church and I went to a Quaker uh, influenced college. And uh, it was during that time that I started understanding for myself that silence and stillness um, had to be part of my spiritual belief system. So I, um, I studied Buddhism and I've been studying Buddhism for the past 25 years. Um, and I am just so fundamentally shifted by um, Buddhist teachings on how to practically live our lives with meaning. Um, I consider myself a Buddhist, but I don't um, consider myself exclusively a Buddhist. Uh, you know, there's so much that I love and respect from other traditions as well. Oh, that's beautifully put beautifully put. I think a lot of our listeners will relate. And finally, as, as our conversation comes to its close, what do you want people to take away after they read Heartwood? I love that some readers have told me that they've read Heartwood and they've approached losses in their own life for the first time, but they've also considered other losses. People have said this makes me think about my divorce differently, uh, or it makes me think about this phase of life in which I find myself in which I'm an empty nester, perhaps their children have just gone off to college, um, or the loss of an animal companion, um, or the loss of a, an object that had meant so much to them. So I welcome all of those conversations about thinking about how we can look at loss in our lives, even in the smallest moments. And when we say goodbye to someone, for instance, like uh, somebody's going off to school or the grocery store just around the corner, how we say goodbye matters. So we don't have to take it all on at once talking about our final deaths, but really start contemplating how does this look in my day-to-day -day life in such a way that my 
my present life grows richer and fuller all the time. Oh, well, this conversation has made my life richer and fuller, and I'm sure that listeners would agree. So thank you so much for taking this time. The book, everyone, is Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. The author is Barbara Becker. You've gotten to know her a little bit today, and I hope you will get to know her a lot better, both online and in the pages of her Nautilus Book Award-winning memoir. So thank you all for listening today. May you live richly and fully and go out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy, at MainStreetVegan.com. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.